0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So, uh, this is the second week of Advent, and last week when I did the announcements, I was strongly tempted to turn and to ask Jody... Am I allowed to say Merry Christmas yet? And that would have put him in quite a bind, you know? What is he supposed to say? He can't say no. Um, Anyway, Merry Christmas. I was very excited last week at the beginning of the Christmas season. So, well, good morning to you. I am uh, happy to be preaching today. And our passage is the account of Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist. You've already heard it, read to you, and so I want you to try to keep the whole story in mind as I preach to you today. And this morning, I'm going to focus on three things. First, there's the waiting. It's an essential element of the story. The characters in this story are living in a very tumultuous and unstable time, and they are waiting for what's referred to in Luke 2 as the consolation of Israel. They come from a people who have been waiting for hundreds of years for the promises of God to come into fruition. And so we're, talking, we're going to be talking, or I'm going to be talking about waiting. Next, uh, at the center of this story is the issue, the question of belief, of faith. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, and he was doubting. This is a man who, it says in the text, walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. He was a righteous man. But when his time came to shine, when his time came to be on the center of the stage for all the rest of mankind to read in the Bible, uh, he doubted. And so we're going to look at his unbelief and the discipline he endured and try to learn from his mistake finally there is john's birth and the anticipation of the messiah's arrival the glory of those events and the joy they bring to those who believe is our third topic for today and as we look at that topic uh, we'll be looking more specifically at zacharias's prophecy but first as i begin i want to set the stage and pastor baker and i were having a conversation earlier this week and Uh, He asked me if I was going to do this, and I said, told him no, but I decided against it. I'm going to do it. We're going to talk about uh, the history of the Jewish people. I'm going to give you a a real crash course in Jewish history so that you can get a feeling for what it would be like to be alive at that time. I want us to try to enter in as much as possible to what's going on when this angel, Gabriel, appears to Zacharias. And so my crash course in Jewish history begins roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ. So that's roughly 500 B.C., long after the glorious days of King David and King Solomon. You remember King David conquered and his son Solomon built the temple. Amazing, the, you know, the, the pinnacle of the, uh, the strength of Israel. And so... 500 B.C., that's, that's ancient history at this point. Not only that, but the glorious temple that Solomon had built has long been destroyed. By 500 B.C., the people of Israel had just returned to their homeland after having lived for many years as slaves in a foreign country in Babylon. So this is right after the period of time referred to as the Babylonian captivity. And significantly, they were, when they returned... To their land, to their homeland, they were able to rebuild the temple. Real significant for them. Now I'm sure that by and large, the people of Israel were delighted to be back in their homeland, right? Who wouldn't be? If you had been a slave in a foreign country for many years, you'd be excited to be back home. But of course, the nation now, 500 BC, was nothing like it had been under King David and King Solomon, right? Right? It was, on the world stage, a has-been. It was of no importance. They were a provincial backwater. The nations that actually mattered in 500 B.C. probably didn't think about Judah at all. So now, let's skip forward uh, a few hundred years. Like I said, it's going to be a crash course. The Israelites have been living in their homeland since 500 B.C., and we're going to skip to 160 B.C., so roughly 160 years before John the Baptist and Jesus are born. Now, what happened in our country 160 years ago? Civil War, right? The Civil War. This is a, this is a time span that we can kind of conceive of a little bit easier, because we can think of the Civil War, right? That's a long time ago, but we can... We can have it in our minds. Now, do we still think about that conflict? Does that conflict, uh, is it relevant to us today? Do we, does anything of our, do any of our conflicts today uh, have any connection to that conflict 160 years ago? Yes, right? Obviously. Just in the last few years, there've, there's been huge conflict over all around our country, over the removal of what? Symbols, flags, monuments, of what? Of what? Well, by and large, they were symbols, they were monuments, uh, honoring the heroes of the South, right? And they've been removed, by and large. So, does what happened 160 years ago, does it still live within our minds? Is it still part of our life? Absolutely it is, right? So yes, we do think about our national civil war, which happened 160 years ago. So roughly 160 years before Jesus, before John the Baptist are born, the Greeks had been the dominant power in the world for a long time, the Greek Empire. But that power was starting to diminish, right? As happens to any great power, eventually they... Uh, fade and go off into the I suppose the dustbin of history is that a thing um, anyway, their power was diminishing, and other groups were starting to to rise in power. Uh, the Romans w- hadn 't quite uh, achieved their their strength, but they were on the rise right This is again roughly one hundred and sixty years before Christ is born. Now, what happens when in an ordered place, whether in a home or a nation, you have a power that starts to decrease, and other powers are starting to feel their oats. What's going on, right? Nature abhors a vacuum, and uh, when one power starts to weaken, there's a vacuum of power. And so others try to rush in and take that place. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the playground after school or if you're talking about a business, or if you're talking about a nation, or even an empire, nature abhors a vacuum. And anytime there's this transfer of power, you're going to have tension and fighting, and, and there's going to be uneasiness until the order is reestablished. Right? We're gonna, everyone wants to know, okay, who's the top dog at this point? And so it's no surprise <clears throat> that this is what we see here. The Greeks had controlled Israel from a distance for a very long time. They paid, you know, Israel paid tribute to, the, to them for a very long time, but the stage was now set for major changes to come about. And it's no surprise that there was tension inside the nation of Israel as well. They had been under the influence and control of the Greeks for a long time, and uh, an important segment of the Jewish population wanted to adopt Greek customs this is where you start to see the development of these, the different uh, groups, um, sects, within the, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? This is where you start to see the, the history of them develop. And the Sadducees actually were the ones that loved Greek culture and wanted to adopt many of the Greek customs that were absolutely abhorrent to the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to keep Sticking to the old ways, to the the old dietary laws, to the laws about circumcision, to the laws about animal sacrifice, all of those things were up for grabs in in the conflict that's developing uh, in the nation of Israel. You got a conflict between the Orthodox and the Reformers, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the conflict wasn't like, you know, you're not talking Twitter, uh, Twitter tweets back and forth. You're actually talking about fighting, killing, dying, the shedding of actual blood. Uh, they actually fought each other. And they fought each other. They fought foreign powers. You know, they would try to get foreign powers to ally with them against each other. You know, th- this was a very messy uh, uh, time. And so the upshot of all the fighting was that by around 140 BC the Hebrew nation had had finally gained enough independence that they were that there was a Jewish king on the throne in Jerusalem for the first time in hundreds of years hundreds of years so think about that think about that think about being an american think if we had been controlled by foreign well first of all think if we had been slaves in a foreign country then we returned and then, ever since then, we've been controlled by a foreign country for, for years and years. And finally, we have an American leading us, and we're not paying tribute to anybody. We don't have to do anything that they tell us. We are just our own nation. Think about that. This is the situation roughly 140 years before the birth of John the Baptist. Now... What have things in our nation been like in the last 140 years? We haven't had a civil war. That's good, right? But we've had, you know, tension. We've had riots. We've had wars. Most of them have been foreign. I suppose Pearl Harbor was about the closest thing. I mean, that was on our, in our, within our borders. But aside from that... no matter what you say about our 140 years that we've experienced as americans is nothing it was smooth sailing compared to the 140 years leading up to the birth of christ our experience as americans bears no resemblance to the jewish experience leading up to the birth of john the baptist in those 140 years there was bloody fighting constantly different factions trying all kinds of shenanigans each transition of power leading to many people being killed, the tensions between the, the Orthodox, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, was intense. Things got so intense that hundred years, roughly 100 years before the birth of John, one of the kings of Israel, who was sympathetic to the Sadducees, had hundreds of Pharisees crucified in revenge for a fight that they had had. Now think about that. What would it be like? What would relations be like between the North and the South in our country if Abraham Lincoln had decided to crucify all the leaders of the South? We would remember that, right? (laughs) We would think about that. Okay, so what is uh, my point in going through all this history? It's not in the text, so why would I do it? First... My point is actually to stiffen your resolve. You have not begun to wait. Right? We have a lot to learn from the example of the saints who have waited before us. God, God's people have been waiting since Adam and Eve left the garden. This is not a bug. This is a feature. God's people wait patiently, alertly. For him. The mark of a Christian is someone who is waiting for the Lord to work. Just like the people of God in ancient times, we wait on God. Now, waiting is not easy, right? Kids, is waiting for Christmas easy? No, right? It's not. <clears throat> it's not easy to wait patiently for something we want desperately to happen. But, it's fitting during the, during the Advent season that we meditate on what it means to wait. What does it mean for you to say that you are waiting for something? Most basically and most obviously, it means that you believe that what you're waiting for will surely come to pass. It means that you believe the one who told you that it would happen. And so my question to you this morning is, are you waiting on the Lord? Are you waiting patiently? And what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a son? Are you waiting for a wife? Are you waiting for a job? You know, God's people in this nation for many years have been waiting for the end of abortion in our nation. We work and we wait. This is what Christians do. We wait on the Lord. My second point in bringing up all of the history and going through all that history is to highlight the huge difference between what we think is important and what God thinks is important. Our story today in uh, Luke chapter 1 picks up with these words, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now Herod was no Jewish king. He was placed in that position by the Romans roughly 40 years before the birth of John the Baptist. So, as our story begins, God's chosen people were once again controlled by a foreign power. Amazing. After a brief stint of independence that only lasted about 100 years, they were once again under someone else's thumb. But aside from pointing out that Herod was the king at the time, Nothing of all the history I've recounted is here. I don't think that's the case because, you know, I I don't think that God left it all out because it's unimportant. I don't think that's true. I I, I believe that in spite of all the wickedness and death and suffering, all human history testifies ultimately to the glory and power and goodness of God. It's a story that will ultimately uh, bring glory to God. So why does God leave it all out of his word here in our passage today? Why does he leave it all out when the most important events of human history are about to take place? I believe he does it because he wants to draw our attention to what's actually important. How will a people be prepared for the Lord? How will a people be prepared for the coming of the Lord? Not when they have enough nuclear bombs... Not when we have enough Teslas or iPhones. Not when Starbucks decides to print Merry Christmas on their coffee cups. It's silly, right? We're so worried about so many things. But we're not worried about what we need to be worried about. A people will be prepared for the Lord when they know their need for the grace of God. And they know that God is gracious. These two faithful souls, Zacharias and Anna, wanted a baby. She was barren and she desperately wanted a child. And so the angel appears to Zacharias and announces to him that he and his wife are going to have a baby boy. The boy's name will be God is Gracious. John, God is Gracious. The angel's message is not just about Zacharias and Anna and their little family unit. This son is going to be special. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't exist just to make his mother happy. Gabriel tells Zacharias he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. This is what's important. All that other stuff about China and India, the Supreme Court, Democrats, Republicans... Starbucks coffee cups, all of it is insignificant to a people prepared for the Lord. And God has made us ambassadors of this message. We have the message of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Why are we worried about these other things? Why are we worried about them when we have that message within us, when we are to be made ministers of reconciliation if Christians are people who are waiting in readiness, then we are also a people of faith. Faith, just like patient waiting, is also a mark of a Christian. If we are waiting on the Lord, then we trust that what he has said is true and will come to pass. But how does Zacharias respond to the angel Gabriel? He hears what the angel says but then he responds with how will I know this for certain for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years now there are numerous interactions like this in scripture where you have a conversation between a man or a woman and either God or one of God's messengers think of uh, Abraham and his visitors think of uh, Moses and the burning bush Of course, just a few verses after this exchange between Zacharias and Gabriel, we read about Mary's conversation with Gabriel, the very same angel. And it's interesting to note that Zacharias is punished for his question, is disciplined for it, but Mary is not. Why is that? Does that ever seem strange to you? Ever thought about that? Well, and you know, there there are various scenarios like this in Scripture where it seems it can be confusing because They seem similar, and yet God's response can be very different depending on the the setting, depending on the context. And um, the important thing to remember, to keep in mind, is that in all these situations, God is the one who sees the heart. So you have to start there. But at the bottom of all these interactions, there is this question. Does this person trust God or not? Jesus repeatedly condemned his people during his earthly ministry for being an evil, unbelieving generation. And that, despite his righteousness, despite the fact that he is attested to as a a man who walked with the Lord, despite all that, that is what Zacharias was at fault for here. He was unbelieving, and he demanded some kind of a sign to prove that he could trust what Gabriel was telling him. Now, as a punishment for his unbelief, Zacharias is uh, struck dumb, and it appears uh, later in the text that he's also deaf. So it's kind of ironic because the, the angel tells him, I'm not going to give you a sign, but then <laughs> he can't talk or hear, uh, which kind of is a sign. Uh, and the, but the sign was that he wouldn't be able to tell anyone what he had heard. Isn't that weird? Isn't that kind of ironic? If we actually work to put ourselves into Zacharias's shoes, we, I think, will acknowledge, will admit that we're sympathetic. Right? Do you struggle, do you find it easy to trust God? Are the promises of God For you? Can you trust the Word of God? Now, there are many things that assail us on this point, that attack us when we think about what it means for us, for me, for you, to trust God. There's plenty of other religions in the world that claim to speak for God or claim to be the source of truth, right? That could be confusing. There's lots of other ideologies out there that claim to have the moral high ground, to have moral authority. I was uh, downtown a few weeks ago, and I ended up in a conversation with a young woman who was there with a group of other people trying to convince everyone uh, to stop eating, killing and eating animals, right? She was a vegan, and she was trying to convince everyone of the wickedness of, of eating animals. And it was just amazing to me. In the conversation, she took the moral high ground and made me kind of feel like, wow, you know, she's like, why are you so cruel? Eating animals. Um, She's claiming the moral high ground and telling me that I'm wicked. You know, that's a confusing thing. There are those who will mock you for believing that there is a God or that heaven is an actual place. We are mocked for waiting on the Lord when many men of ambition and strength and vigor say, it's time for us to seize our destiny and to build a brave new world now. I'm reading a book uh, about that kind of goes through a a bunch of different men who, in the last few hundred years, who were trying to do just that, trying to build a brave new world. Uh, You know, think of guys like Karl Marx, or uh, the the chapter I just finished was on Leo Tolstoy. Um, Something that binds these guys together, not only is is their pride, right, Their, their amazing pride, but they want the new heavens and the new earth right now. Right? They're trying to build the new heavens and the new earth right now. And so they look at us waiting. Why are you waiting when the time is now? When we can seize our destiny now. We also live in a very scientific age where supposedly we aren't supposed to believe in things like angels or heaven or a life after this one. We're supposed to act like the only things that are real are things that you can see and touch. Things that we can measure in a lab. But what if Elon Musk comes along and tells you that you're in the Matrix and that everything you see is is not real, right? We kind of giggle, but how do you know that he's wrong? How do we know? All of these things, all of these things that I've listed that distract us from trusting in God's Word, trusting in the testimony of those who have gone before us, all of them try to take our minds away from the fact that God is there and that he has spoken. He has given to us his word. We know that Elon Musk is wrong because God has told us about this world and the nature of it. From the very beginning of time, mankind has depended on the word of God to tell us which way is up. It was no different in Abraham's day. It's no different in Zacharias's day. It's no different today. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The truth is, all of us live by what we believe to be true. We live by the words that someone at some point spoke to us. So it's not like Christians have their faith and other more modern up-to-date people have their facts. Whoever you are, whatever you believe, it comes down to who do you trust? Do you believe God? Do you believe Elon Musk? Do you believe Karl Marx? Who do you believe? We all believe someone. You've got to serve someone. And so I love this passage in James that I found very helpful. It's such a sweet, sweet promise. If you're ever struggling with doubts and, and concerns or you know what to believe, how to believe, this, this passage in James is amazing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Isn't that amazing? But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. Now, it's an amazing, amazing promise, but I think that many of us are still still struggle with it because he, because of that part he goes into the the doubts thing. Like, well, but I do have doubts. Like, well, I don't know what's, what's going on here. <clears throat> Doubting is bad, right? But the doubt is not a uh, doubt is not the same thing as a question. Uh, I read that a doubt is like a counterfeit question. I think that's right. I think that's right. We are often paralyzed because we don't understand the difference between doubts and questions. And the, and the reality is that a question asked in faith, going to God and with faith and trust, has an answer. You can get an answer to a question, right? And as you work and struggle to get answers to questions that you have, You grow in wisdom. You grow in faith. A Christian is supposed to grow in wisdom, right? We're supposed to ask questions. How do you grow in wisdom without asking questions? That's what you're supposed to do. Doubts, on the other hand, simply lead to insecurity. Doubts are like, what if God didn't create the world, you know? There's no way to answer that question. What if he did? Doubts versus questions. A Christian has questions and he grows in wisdom as a result of going to God in faith, to his word, trusting that, uh, that God will give him what he needs to live. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now maybe you're on board generally with what I've been saying so far. But maybe you're like Zacharias, right? After all, Zacharias was a priest, He uh, believed in being prepared for the Lord, he believed in God, and he believed in things he couldn't see, but he struggled to believe that his wife would have a child. In his response to Gabriel, he didn't ask about his son being the one uh, making ready a people prepared for the Lord, he didn't ask about his son turning the hearts of fathers to their children. What he couldn't believe is that he would have a son. Now isn't that just like us? You believe in God, you're here at church, presumably you believe in God, you believe in righteousness, but you struggle to believe that God will care for you and your family, that God will provide food for you to eat and clothes for you to wear. Brothers and sisters, all through history, the saints have believed in God. Martin Luther once said, faith honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard, since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. There is no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. On the other hand, there is no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him, as we do when we do not trust him. Again, our need to trust God, to have faith, is not a bug here. This is a feature from the beginning of creation till now to when Christ returns. It is not a bug, it is a feature. God's people wait patiently for him. God's people trust him. Now, Zacharias didn't believe, and he was disciplined for his unbelief. But when his son was born, he wrote the boy's name on a tablet, John which means God is gracious. And his mouth was opened and he could speak again. Imagine the joy of that father at that moment. He had spent nearly a year deaf and dumb. He was a priest, but he was unable to communicate. What do you do when you're put on the shelf for a while? When you have nothing to contribute? When you feel like your life is on hold? Hold. What do you do? I think it's clear from our text this morning that John or rather Zacharias meditated on the grace of God and the meaning of Gabriel's words. How do I know? Because of the prophecy uh, in verses 67 through 79. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but just some highlights. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Past tense and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. This is what came out of Zacharias after meditating for a year on the grace of God. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It took nine months of silence, but Zacharias figured it out. He finally understood. From time to time, from time, to time in this pulpit, you'll hear our pastors put down preaching that's just grace, 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 right? You've heard this from time to time. But I don't want you to be confused on this point. Okay. When we do that, when the pastors put down grace, grace, grace and the grace mantra stuff, we're talking about cheap grace. Grace that doesn't cost anything. Grace that avoids any mention of sin or death or hell or judgment. It's preaching about grace that is pointless because it's entirely unneeded. Why would a rich man need a loan? Why would a wise man need advice? Why would a good man face execution? right? If you don't need something, it's pointless to talk about it. But if you know that you're poor and stupid and guilty, then you know the truth that the grace of God changes everything. It's this grace that Zacharias prophesies about, that we are accepted by God, that we are forgiven. In the hurly-burly of that time period, with empires falling and new empires coming up, with conflict in the nation of Israel between the different sects going on. Zacharias doesn't mention any of that. None of it. He doesn't mention any of it. John the Baptist was going to be raised up to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. God's grace changes everything. Armed with the forgiveness of God, how can our enemies harm us? And even if we are killed, we go to our graves with joy because God has accepted our works. But this precious promise is only true for those who trust in God's words. This precious promise is only good for those who wait patiently for him. Do you trust him? How are you waiting for him? But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus tells a parable of how we are to wait. And we're not supposed to wait like you wait at the BMV right, sort of twiddling your thumbs, dozing or being upset or angry, we are waiting for our master to return. We are, we are putting our, our house in order so that when our master comes, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you ready for him? Someone once said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. What he should have said is that life is what happens when you're waiting for Christ to return. So, I want to read in closing today a section from James chapter 5. And I want you to listen carefully to it. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Have you seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings? Do you know that he is full of compassion and is merciful? I hope so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious gospel. We thank you that you have made us ministers of reconciliation. And I pray that we would through our joy overflowing, that we would share this message of reconciliation with everyone we have a chance to. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and gladness at this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.